You're listening to coverage of the 2021 Convention of the American Council of the Blind. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Dixon, co-host of the Information, co-chair of the Information Access Committee. Welcome to an evening with ACB. Tonight, we're going to be talking about financial management, everybody's favorite topic. But before we get started, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Janet Dickelman, who's got some important matters to tell you all about. Good evening, everyone. First of all, anyone who is use, is obtaining um, continuing education credits or personal development from this session, the opening CEU code is 29570. Again, the CEU code is 29570. And at the end of this segment or the end of this session, we will be taking questions. So if anyone would like to ask a question, send it anytime during the session to questions at acb.org that's questions at acb.org and at the end of this uh, session we will try to answer as many of your questions as we can back to you judy thank you janet okay our host and moderator of this evening's event is don barrett don over to you all righty well thank you judy um we have an exciting panel for everyone tonight, and I think you're all going to really enjoy these presentations. Judy is going to start things off in a minute or so, talking about how to deposit checks using the iPhone. I, for one, can't wait for that. That's something I've never been able to do, but Judy's going to show us all how it's done, and we're excited about that. And then we'll have Brian Charlson talking about this mysterious and interesting topic called credit, how to keep it, how to get it, what to do with it, and why you want it. And then from there, Kelly Ford of Microsoft is going to regale us with some really cool Excel functions that will contribute to our financial literacy that I would bet most of us are not familiar with. So this is all going to be quite exciting. These are awesome technologists that we have on the panel people who have dedicated their lives to being technology experts so that each one of us who are listening and involved, our lives are better for their efforts. And for that, we are very, very grateful to the three of them and are glad that they're here tonight. So first up, we'll start with Judy, who's, as I said, is going to talk about depositing checks with the iPhone. The one thing I want to say very quickly is that you all who are listening are hearing about this for the very first time. This is brand new. This is something that has never been publicly aired before and would not have happened without Judy's personal commitment and hard work. And we may actually be able to give her the title of co-inventor at the end of this evening. And so with that being said, I'm happy to turn it over to you, Judy. The floor is yours. Thank you, Don. 
I am going to talk about depositing checks independently with a smartphone. You can do this with Android phones as well as iPhones. I'm going to do this with an iPhone because that's what I personally use, but it's possible to do it with both. We've all been getting paper checks for years and years and years, and we've been depositing them because that's the only way we can get our bank to give us our money. And in the olden days, we didn't get our money until we actually took the check to physical bank and gave it to a physical person. Well, banks have started having apps on smartphones that allowed the mobile deposit of checks. And when they first started having apps to do this, it was pretty difficult to do. There weren't a lot of features in them to make it easier. And it was not easy. But over the years, they've gotten easier and easier. And I started using one, an app to deposit my checks occasionally three or four years ago. But I would also take checks to the bank if I happened to be going that way because the app wasn't that easy. But once the pandemic came and the only way to talk to your bank was to slip a note under the door or something, the idea of depositing checks with a smartphone became a lot more appealing. It was a way to actually get the money in the bank. And with most banks, the money is available to you the very next day. Most banks have iOS and Android apps. And the process involves preparing the check, running the app, filling in the information it wants, scanning the front and back of the check, and then tapping the deposit button. And the app will confirm that your check was deposited successfully and usually you get an email. So let's break this down. What's involved? What do I mean by preparing the check? You need to know which side of the check is the front. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Sometimes if you know where the check came from, you might know that there's a perforation at the top of the check or perforation at the end. You might be able to feel the person's signature on the check. There's a lot of different ways to know which is the front. But if none of those ways work for you, you can even use one of the scanning apps on your phone. On the iPhone, Prismo Go is good. It won't, a lot of apps want to be helpful to you, so they'll read stuff whether it's upside down or not. Prismo Go will read gibberish if it's upside down, and it'll read it just fine if it's right side up. But they are going to be adding a feature. I've been corresponding with them, and they're adding a feature to indicate the orientation of what's being read. Uh, I also corresponded with Voice Dream Scanner. Mr. Chen also thought that adding an orientation indication was a good idea. And he hasn't said when he's going to do it, but he said he thought it was a good idea and he would consider doing it. But Prismo Go is definitely going to do it. So once you know which side is the front, you need to sign the back of the track. So what you want to do is flip it on its long edge and then sign the left end. And you need to sign it as close to that left end as possible. And I sign mine with a pen on my tablecloth or something so that I can feel where I signed. Because from then on, I can keep track of which side of the check is the front and which side of the check is back. And that's really helpful. You also need to know the amount of the check. And often we know the amount when we get the check. But if you can't, you can either use IRA or something like that to read the amount of the check. 
they can also tell you if it's right side up. Or you can uh, scan it. And I've gotten some pretty good luck with uh, seeing AI. Actually, the handwriting feature, if it's handwritten, or just reading the check if it's typed. And that works really well. Most banks want you to write for mobile deposit in name of bank on the back of the check. I had a self-inking stamp made to do this, but it's something I haven't had a bank reject my check for not doing it. So I don't know how important it is, but they do ask you to do that. So that's all that you have to do to prepare the check. Then you want to run the app and fill in the information. I found it easiest to run the app. It's going to ask you what account you want it in, how much the check is, or, and you have to fill all this in. I do all that before I, well, I do all that before I scan it. And you can do those things in the app, usually in any order you want to. We'll talk about scanning in, in just a second. But you do want to run the app, fill in all the information. Let's talk about scanning. There's the bank as Wells Fargo is, is the bank I primarily use. I've, I've actually deposited checks using three different banking apps, and they've all worked almost exactly the same. You want to place the check on a dark colored surface and, that is not reflective and well lighted. And by dark color, they really actually mean black. And if you've got anything, a black piece of paper, a black piece of cardboard, if you don't have that, a black tablecloth, a black placemat will work. Even the top of a laptop will work. And a lot of laptops are black. So any nice black non-reflective surface will work. Lighting is really important. Make sure the lighting is good and strong. Um, I deposit my checks usually during the day on a table right by a window. So I make sure there's plenty of light. You want to position the camera directly over the check, not angled at all. And that's very important. And the other thing is you have to fit all corners inside the guides that's the, in the app. And this is the hardest thing to do independently as a blind person. So when you start, you, you're going to tell the app you want to do a mobile deposit. You're going to select the account you want, enter the amount of the check, and then you're going to scan the front and scan the back. And they usually have separate buttons for this. So you have to make sure that when it says scan the front, it's the front you're scanning. A lot of the apps actually know, and it'll tell you, no, that's the back of the check. Don't do that. Um, the apps have gotten very, very smart. It's quite impressive how, how much they know about what you're doing. And after you get done scanning the front and back, it'll tell you if it's accepted the pictures. And if it has, then you can, then the deposit button will be undimmed and you can deposit and it'll tell you a success. So the check was deposited. It is possible to do this without any special equipment. Um, the way you do that is you, the way I do it anyway, is you lay your phone camera in the middle of the check and then raise it very, very slowly. Most of the banking apps have what's called auto capture and the app will actually take the picture of the check once the all four corners are visible. You can do this, but whenever I did it this way, I had to try many times, six, eight, ten times. There is a retry auto capture. It doesn't seem to care how many times you retry the audio capture, but um, it's a pain and it's, it, it is doable. Yes, um, there are you can you can just do it with a you know scanning scan and a phone holder and try to position. They help fine with getting the 
phone at the right height, but they don't help with positioning the check under the camera. So I'm going to talk about a new device. I've been working with a, um, a man who has a company called LV Tablet Stand, and he invented this tablet stand to help low vision people have something that they can use to hold their iPads and tablets at a, at a comfortable viewing height. Uh, but on his website, he said, if you have any ideas for other products or other things that might be helpful, let me know and I'd work with you. So I contacted him and said, well, what about a check depositing accessory? And he thought that was a great idea. And we've been working on this for several months now with several different iterations until we got it where it's really working pretty well. So let me describe this tablet stand to you. The initial tablet stand is a two-part device, and the base has a post that goes up the center. The post is about three-quarters of an inch in diameter. At the top of the post is a knob that holds the tablet stand itself. The tablet stand can be horizontal, vertical, or anything that actually tips. The stand is about, say, five inches by nine inches. It has a spring-loaded phone holder at one end. I have an iPhone there. So there's iPhone held, and then the iPhone can actually be slid further one side or the other. So one of the adjustments you can make when you figure out the exact position for you to deposit your check with your phone. The base of the stand has four you can call them, but they're they're flat, almost like little paddles. There's one sticking out in each of the four directions to form a kind of the one that sticks out to the farthest away, the north side, has a series of tactile dots, one dot, two dot, three dots, about each about an inch apart. And we're going to use those to line up the check depositing accessory. The check depositing accessory is a separate device. It's a flat piece of, uh, this is all 3D printed, so it's all nice 3D printed plastic stuff. And um, this can either, it's made to easily deposit very large checks and small checks. So it has two legs on each end, and you can stand it on its legs, and it's about 7.5 inches from the camera. If you Lay it down flat. It's about 10 inches from the camera. And it has a quarter of a circle cut out on one of its corners that fits nicely up in the post in the middle of the So it all stays together nicely. And when you run the app and scan front, you can put the check in this folder and the um, app will recognize the and the apps that I've used, all you know when it took the picture because you'll hit the app goes into landscape orientation when it's scanning the check. And after the scan is done, the phone will say, voiceover will say portrait, and it's gone back into portrait and ready for you to flip it to the next thing in the app. So it's very deep. For the first time you scan a check, you have to probably get knowing exactly which one of these dots line, line up on the uh, tech holder to line it up with. 
exactly what you're home because all of these things make a difference. But once you've done it, then you know that I'm going to have my stockholder conditioned just at the second month. And I'm going to put my phone out just past its camera, and that will work for depositing a check. This is from a company called LVTabletsAnd.com, and it's the check accessory. Okay, Don, I think that's it. Excellent. Excellent. Boy, I can't wait to get one of those. And I imagine a lot of our listeners can't either. Um, you know, I'm wondering, have, have you guys given any thought to you know, some documentation so that you know, people could actually read it and practice and learn how to use it? Um, I, have, I have written instructions that will be uh, sent with the device. People purchase it. Oh, and I, I didn't say, but the device costs $75 for, for the tablet stand and the track accessory. And you, okay. can, and you can use it to hold up your iPad, too. Wow. Wow. Excellent. Boy, I think that is so exciting. And I plan to practice. Anybody out there who wants to send me checks to practice with when I get my <laughs> device, you're welcome to do so. Yeah, somebody's going to give me heck for saying that, but that's okay. I like to have fun. Well, that was excellent, Judy. And gosh, you guys must have put a lot of work into this. Um, and I I really hope people, uh, how can they reach this uh, fella and this, uh, is it a website or is it, it a, a website? The website is in, is LV for low vision, lvtabletstand.com. And then at the email address is info at lvtabletstand.com. Okay. And the name of the device again? It's an LV tablet stand check accessory. Check accessory. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that was terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, this is brand new, folks. And those of you who have this issue come up from time to time, uh, once you get the device and learn how to use it, I'm sure you will be glad. I am ordering one at the end of the session tonight. You can be sure of that. And um, I'm pretty excited about it. Thank you, Judy, very Thanks. much. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, next up, uh, we have Brian Charlson. The unstoppable Brian Charlson, who I always consider kind of a powerhouse of ACB. He's into everything, knows everything that's going on, and of course, is a real technologist and has been for many, many years, having run the technology program at the Carroll Center for over three decades. Um, one of the things I really admire about Brian is that he has a knack, almost a gift for knowing what to say, when to say it, and how to say it to really make a difference. I've been in plenty of meetings with Brian where he's been quiet, and then something happens and a meeting goes awry or astray, and all of a sudden Brian's in there straightening everything out, getting everybody back on track, and it's just the way he does things. And I've learned over the years that when Brian talks, people should listen, and I think that tonight is no exception to that rule. Uh, Brian is an expert on a lot of things, and credit is one of them. I'm going to tell a very quick story for a reason why you should all really listen to this and take everything Brian says to heart. A few years back, I got my credit reports, and I reviewed them, 
And it turns out that an ex-spouse of mine had co-signed a loan using my name and information without my knowledge and had defaulted on the loan. That loan, defaulted loan, ended up on my credit report, and I would never have known had I not gotten my credit reports and read them. Uh, needless to say, I was just aghast and astounded and not very happy at all. But uh, what happened was I called the bank, they they took it off, and I told them this happened after the divorce. And, you know, it was a long, crazy, one of those yucky stories. But the bottom line is I wasn't caught unawares because somebody told me about doing this, and I I did it, and I was so glad that I had gotten my reports. And so with that, I want to thank you, Brian, for being here with us. And please tell us, tell us all what we need to know about credit. If you hear a noise in the background, that's because I'm using Orbit Reader 20 as my Braille teleprompter for my presentation. So you hear that lovely tick noise? That's what that's about. It's not your microphone. It's not the audio feed here this evening. Those guys got that all uh, doing well. So just keep that in mind as I go forward. One of the things that I realized here in the past couple of years, as I went into slightly early retirement, was the importance of financial literacy. That is the importance of knowing how you are doing in the world of both income and outgo in your personal finances. Now, there's those components that are everyday kind of things that you deal with and those that you only deal with rarely. Unfortunately, credit probably is one of those things that people think about uh, a day late and a dollar short. So I want to talk to you a bit about credit as part of what you need to invest some time and energy into to be financially literate about your own situation. Let's start with some introduction of terms associated with this. First is this idea idea of into your bank account so that you can begin working with it. So number one, you have to have a banking account. You set those things up. Mostly we think of a banking account as a checking account and perhaps a savings account. You may have multiple checking accounts and multiple savings accounts, more likely multiple savings accounts than general banking accounts. But those savings accounts allow you to save money for specific purposes over a period of time and allows you to have a place to separate the cash that you have ready access to to ones that maybe you're trying to keep a bit of an arm's length from. Important things to have those set up and set up at a banking institution that provides you with excellent accessibility. That accessibility can be as everyday as an ATM within walking distance of your home to, uh, and I mean an accessible one, and we've been involved here in ACB in making ATMs accessible over the years. So access to an ATM, access to reasonable banking hours, access to individuals who understand your needs as this subset of clients called blind or visually impaired. So setting up those banking accounts, very, very important. The second thing you need to really have in place to be financially literate and have real control of your life, and most of us don't have one, is a budget. It's amazing when you stop and just 
look back on last year and how much money you spent on different things that you just did not have a clue that those were going out of your pocket as fast as the money was going into your pocket. So setting up a budget, very, very important thing for people to do who really want to approach, as I did, the retirement years, knowing where you stand in that regard. So creating budgeting, lots of different apps out there that can allow you to do that. Uh, you need a budget. UNAB is one of those apps that I've used uh, fairly successfully. Uh, it does mean, though, there's that old computer term, giggle, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't put the information in, the information you're going to get out is going to be totally useless. So you really have to get yourself into a habit of keeping track of what you spend and what you spend it on. A good budget will not only help you understand how you've spent the money, but set you up in such a way that you will have accumulated the funds you need to do something you anticipate you're going to have to spend money on in the future. So then comes this issue of credit. What exactly is this thing called credit? Credit is the ability to borrow future money to pay for current expense, whatever that might be. And of course, when we're talking about that, there's a couple of different kinds of credit that you need to concern yourself with. That is, <clears throat> you need to understand that you've got, again, you've got income, you have expenses, and you have borrowing. And you can borrow money in two primary ways. One, you can do secured borrowing. Those of us who have a mortgage are doing just that. We are borrowing money from an institution to pay for a home, and we are securing that loan with the value of the home. So if we stop paying the monthly mortgage payments, they're going to take the home from us, sell it, and get their money back. So it's secured by the very thing you borrowed money to buy. Another good example of that, of course, is uh, an automobile. You can buy that automobile on a you know, three to six year long credit line. But if you fail to pay, they're going to come and impound your car and sell it to recoup the money that they loaned you to buy it in the first place. So we have both secured and then comes what most of us experience and think of as credit. And that's unsecured loans. That's our credit cards whether or not you're using Visa, MasterCard, whatever it might be, if it is not associated with your bank account and only gives you access to the money that you have in deposit in that bank account, then you have an unsecured loan. It's been loaned to you based on your credit history and your ability to borrow money today and pay it back tomorrow. So it's those kinds of unsecured loans that really play the biggest part as you come up with your credit. So let's talk about what that credit really is, okay? We borrow money. We, let's, let's use the scenario of buying or getting a credit card. I don't think there's a day in my household where we don't get an email from some company saying we've been pre-qualified for a credit card of some kind or other. So let's assume that you took advantage of that and you got yourself a credit card. 
Yes, there's a brand name associated with it. There's a bank associated with that or banking institution that's associated with that. But with that credit card, you've agreed to borrow up to an amount that they've established as your credit limit. And they've indicated how much you're going to be charged in an interest rate during the course of borrowing that money from them. You, in most of these accounts, can borrow, pay back, borrow a little more, pay back a little more, and continue to borrow and pay back as long as you stay beneath that credit limit. If you develop a good relationship with that by borrowing and paying back, borrowing and paying back, the likelihood is they're going to increase your credit limit. They, that is the lender, is doing this based on their belief and personal experience that you were good at paying back what you once borrowed. You're creating a history by doing this borrow, payback, borrow, payback scenario. And in that process, you might think that that's private. That's just between you and that particular bank. Well, I'm here to disavow you of that point of view because this becomes part of a public record which three different institutions regularly review and put together as your credit report. So let's talk about those three institutions. One is called Equifax, that's E-Q-U-I-F-A-X. Now, none of these companies have, you know, it's not like a one company does it for everybody. These are three major companies, the three major companies who do this kind of work. Equifax is one. They collect the same kind of data as the other two companies. Speaking of, the other two companies include TransUnion, T-R-A-N-S-U-N-I-O-N. Again, collecting public records that indicate what kind of money you borrowed and how you were at paying it back. Third company, Experian, E-X-P-E-R-I-A-N. Same thing, collecting information about your credit history and then making that available as a service to entities who want to know how good you are at paying back loans. Let's start here first with Equifax. You're going to want to do one thing with each of these three companies. First, you're going to want to send, set up a user account. This doesn't mean that they haven't been collecting information about you. They have been. They're collecting it. They're putting it into their databases and they're selling access to that information to entities who might want to loan you money, but want to know how good you are at paying it back. So you want to go and set up an account with each of these three companies. The first web address you'll need is www.equifax.com slash personal. See if I can get this stuff properly out. Slash personal slash disputes. D-I-S-P-U-T-E-S. Disputes. And again, that will get you to a place where you can establish an Equifax account so that you can later request your report. If you are not currently comfortable with this idea of going online to do that, then there is a phone number you can call, 
1-877-726-7311. Again, that number, 1-877-726-7311. Now, they actually give two different numbers. And I quite honestly don't know which one is the best way to go. So let me give you that second number, which is one 866 349 5191. 1-866-349-5191. All of this for Equifax. The next one is TransUnion. What's different about them? It's a different company. You'll find that these companies can gather similar information, but not the same information because the companies that are loaning you money and sharing this financial information are not doing it equally between the three companies. You'll find one banking concern does better at reporting to one of these companies than to another. They have access to all of the same information, but they may not use all of the information the same way. So again, TransUnion, and you can find them at www.transunion.com slash, make sure I do this right, slash um, dispute. Now, this time it's dispute, O-N-L-I-N-E, dispute online, all one word. Again, that was uh, www.transunion.com slash dispute online, dispute online. Of course, you'll want to have a phone number if you're more comfortable making this as a phone call. And that's 1-866-726-7388. Third company, Experian, E-X-P-E-R-I-A-M, and their web address is experian.com slash, what do you expect this to be? Disputes, that's ending with an S as in plural, disputes. And their phone number is 1-800-509-8495. Again, 1-800-509-8495. That's how you get a hold of them. Remember, your first step is to go to the website, set yourself up an account so that you can then take advantage of several things. One is you can get free of charge an annual credit report. And you can choose to get that free annual report in accessible form. I have here next to me, I'll show one to the camera here. This is my report for uh, 2019. It is a sizable braille volume. Uh, It has 166 braille pages, double-sided braille pages, eight and a half by 11 comb bound. That's one year's report for me. Not reports for me and my wife. She has a separate report. Again, each individual has a separate report, even though there are crossover information between these reports. I'm setting that one aside. I'm picking up the next one. Significantly smaller. Remember, I said that that these reports aren't the same. This report is half the thickness of the one I was just showing. 
still eight and a half by 11 two-sided braille. This last one is 11 by 11 and a half in braille. And it again is slimmer yet, but again, bigger format. You might ask yourself, where do they get these things produced? Well, they get them produced at the same companies that might produce your braille bank statements or your braille bills from the utility company, those kinds of things. So one of the things that I'm acutely aware of is that frequently these companies that produce braille have blind employees that are involved in the production process. I commend them on employing blind or visually impaired persons. But as Don said, uh, I'm a public person. So the likelihood that somebody who brailed this out, who's a braille reader, might know the name Brian Charleston is pretty high. So I'm glad that uh, I'm not at all embarrassed by the kind of information they might see here. And they carefully retract or redact, that's the right word, I guess. They carefully redact information in terms of credit numbers and, and things like that, not the amounts, but what the credit card uh, number is, those kinds of things, the PIN numbers, so that nobody can take the information they see in one of these reports and steal my identity. Even the social security number that is part of the process is redacted in part. Just enough is there for you to know that it is you they're referring to. So when you get one of the re these reports, what's in it? By the way, do you notice that I haven't used the word credit score? I've only used the word credit report. It is not a score that you receive from these companies free of charge once a year. It is your report. All of the nitty gritty that is used to come up with a credit score are part of these reports. Every time you borrowed money in the last seven years from an institution that provides this information to credit report agencies is in this, whether it was a bank loan, a mortgage, a credit card, whatever it might be, if you borrowed money with the expressed understanding that you were going to pay it back, it's in there. And as a result of all that information, a report is almost entirely tables. Those of you who are Braille readers will know that reading Braille tables is an art form in and of itself. Those who read large print know how difficult it is sometimes to read an entire table on a single piece of paper once you've enlarged it. And those of us who use electronic means for reading tables know that it's a bit of an art form to be able to navigate through electronic tables, especially if those tables aren't fully encoded in a way that takes advantage of the screen reader's ability to move through tables. And you will find this frequently is the case in all three of these companies where you will find yourself the most um, challenged, I'll use the word challenged, is when you go through these tables and you would like to know what the column heading is. Frequently, the column heading is actually posted as a separate pre-table to the actual data. So you have to move to the next table, here are the column headings, move to the next table, and here are the first row of information within that column. You can then use your commands for moving up and down within a column, left and right within a column, to the end of the column, or end of the row, or end of the column, beginning of the row, beginning of column. All of those commands in your screen reader of choice will work once you get in there. But I am here to tell you that frequently 
those headings are separate of the actual columns of data. So you'll have to do a bit of getting used to that. And because you're not doing this each and every day, you need to give yourself some serious time to explore, learn by trial and error, how to get at this information in a way that makes sense to you. Let me give you an example of something you might see in one of this. At the beginning of each table in my Braille copy, it describes, as is frequently the case in Braille formatted tables, a list of the columns follow one another in this order. And then it will give you what those are. But there will also be a table within the document that says what the abbreviations mean, because these tables are filled with abbreviations. You might find that the loaner or creditor is listed by their name, but it's likely to be abbreviated if it's a very long name. When you get to dates, you might see an abbreviation of DT space in order to save a couple of spaces in all these columns. So there will be a table that describes what each of these abbreviations mean so that as you come across them in table headings, you'll be able to do a bit of interpretation. I highly recommend that when you're doing that, you've got yourself a note taker off to the side to write down what some of these definitions are, because you will lose your place in what you're looking at if you have to go back and find that table again to figure out what those initials meant. Let's talk about a credit card for a moment. So we have a credit card. So we're going to see the name of the creditor, the credit card provider. We're going to see how much the maximum credit line is. We're going to see how much is cur currently being borrowed on that card. They're going to find out how frequently a payment is supposed to be made on that card when the last payment was made, if the last payment was made, if it was delinquent, how delinquent the payment was, you're going to find out whether or not this is the only payment that was delinquent or there is a pattern of delinquent payments. You're going to find out whether or not it was a full payment for that or it was a partial payment. If the payment included a payment, not just for this month, but for last month, bringing the amount due to zero, or there's still an outstanding amount. You're getting a feel for how many columns are in one of these tables. And again, this is going to be for each credit card or lender, not only that you have today, but that you have had over up to the last seven years. So if you are a good little creditor, then you will see the name of the company, that you have a credit limit of X dollars, that you currently are not fully expended on those dollars, and that you are up to date on your payments and have a good record in terms of making your payments on time. That's what a future creditor wants to see in your report, that you've borrowed money and you've paid it back and you borrowed again and you've paid it back again and that you have a habit, a history of doing this. You need to know that a creditor is very interested in whether or not you borrow money and pay it back. They're not giving you extra credit if you can borrow money, but that you don't borrow money. 
They're looking for a history where you borrowed and paid back. So they know that if they lend you money, you're going to borrow it and you're going to pay it back and they're going to earn interest through that practice. Several things that you want to keep in mind as you try to have a good credit rating. One is the credit rating does not come with the report. The credit rating is something you can purchase. Each one of these companies are in the business to make money, and they're making money by providing information about your credit history to potential uh, creditors. They're also making money by telling you what your credit score is. It's not a lot of money. It's somewhere around 8 to $12 to find out what your credit score is at a given time. And there are several things that can affect that. Of course, this ability to borrow and pay back, not just to borrow, not just to pay back, not to just show that you owe nobody any money and you haven't for 10 years. That's not a credit history. That's a lack of history. So you get a score as a result of this. And that score is dependent on a formula on how much importance the entity puts on each one of these different aspects of your credit history. A score can be as high as 850 and as low as 300. The fact of the matter is there's not a great deal of difference in what a creditor is going to think if you have a score of 810 or 850. In fact, pretty much a credit score over 700 is going to keep you in fairly good stead as a person who needs to borrow funds for some purpose. You're likely to have a higher interest rate for a lower credit score, but it's not like it changes a great deal from 10 points one or another until you reach one of these cliffs like the 70 or 700 level. Yes, what's happened to you most recently is more important than what happened to you seven years ago. If things got better, consistently better now than then, then that's better for you and your numbers will go up. There are a couple of things that you wouldn't realize make your number go down. As I already mentioned, not using credit that you had available makes your credit number go down. Not great, but it does. The second thing that affects that rating that you wouldn't expect is the more entities check to see what your current number is, the lower your number will become. It will recover after a relatively short period of time, a month or two, after somebody, some entity inquires about your credit, but it will temporarily dip downward when that happens. This reminds me that there's something you should know about your credit. You can seal your credit. You can contact each one of these companies and tell them that you do not want anybody to see your current credit history, and they are required to lock it. You then are the only one who can go back to that entity and say, unlock it. So many of us, as a matter of personal security, rather than having a lot of entities looking to see whether or not maybe we'd be right for, for putting out loan uh, offers to, we'll go in and lock ours so they can't go and take a look at it and decide that we're a good credit risk and offer us money we didn't ask for. In addition, of course, there's all these concerns out there these days about identity theft. We haven't seen any of those crop up in the area of credit reports, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. It's happened to too many large entities to assume that 
this particular, these three particular entities aren't going to fall victim to it at some point. So locking yours does help in that regard. In fact, that's what I do between major loan requests. I'll lock mine. There's some other entities, however, who want to look at this information other than potential uh, creditors. If you're out there looking for a job, your employer may inquire about your credit worthiness as a means of determining your character. Do I want to hire somebody who is always on the edge of credit problems, especially if I'm going to hire them in an area where they may be subject to uh, perhaps sticky fingers in the coffers or something? So they are more recently looking at your credit history. In addition, uh, you might find that in order to sign a lease to rent an apartment, they're going to want to know how reliable you are. You may sign a lease, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're comfortable that you're going to be in a position to pay the monthly rent month after month. It's just like a loan payment, isn't it? So they may be asking. So you need to, if you will, lock your accounts, but be prepared to unlock them when you're going to go through some kind of transaction in the near future, like borrowing money to buy a car, like moving from one rental property to another, like seeking a mortgage on a piece of property, anything along those lines. Lastly, I want to remind you that everything online is in a constant state of change and credit reporting is no different. So as you go forward in your desire to perhaps borrow money to pay for something today and then be able to pay it back to a creditor over time, you want to, one, set up accounts with these three companies. Two, request that annual report. How often? Annually. It's free annually. Make sure that you get it in a format that makes sense to you. It's better to ask for it early and be aware of it rather than chance timing uh, when you need it to be there and be available. There are very few things you can do at the last moment to improve your credit. So take the time now to develop good credit, take time to keep that good credit, and know that going forward, things are going to change and you're going to need to change with them. So that concludes my remarks. I hope that was of value to you. And I'll turn it back over to Don. Don, it's yours. Thank you, Brian. That was an excellent summation. And I'll say what I said before. Brian has spoken. I hope we all listen. And I'll tell you again, if I had a defaulted loan on my report, there's a darn good chance that some people listening to this have things on their reports that they need to know about so that they can fix them and have the kind of credit they want. So thank you so much, Brian. That was great. And that brings us to our final presentation by Kelly Ford of Microsoft. Kelly is a Chief Escalation Engineer at Microsoft. Boy, I bet there's lots of stories he could tell about Microsoft. We all would love to hear them, but I know that's not going to happen. But I often think that the amount of 
features in Microsoft products that are accessible because of Kelly. And I bet you it's a large amount. And Kelly is also an Excel guru and has put together a wonderful pre-recorded uh, videotape that's going to demonstrate data types to get stock information and uh, pivot tables, which we'll touch on what Brian was talking about. You can use pivot tables to see exactly where your money is going over a period of time. And Kelly will be demonstrating it. And this is a perfect way of using pivot tables to really check and monitor your budget. And so with that, I'm excited to turn it over to Kelly through the videotape. And Rick, if you would kindly play that tape, I think we're good to go. This is Kelly. Yes. Um, I, I'd like to mention to the audience that if you have questions about what I talk about, as I think most of your members know, Microsoft has resources. Uh, we have both our what we call our disability answer desk and our enterprise disability answer desk um, that you can contact for questions from this session. Um, I would suggest that you use our enterprise disability answer desk because these are some more advanced features in Excel. Um, and you can email edad, that's E-D-A-D at microsoft.com and I, it will most likely be myself or one of my colleagues that will help you. First, I appreciate your kind words, Don. Um, uh, the number of features that are, you know, have uh, accessibility support at Microsoft has as much to do with anything I've done as it does with everyone in the audience and in the ACB and uh, just consumers and uh, everyone in general. Microsoft values the feedback about what's working and not working immensely. And it is really helpful when we hear uh, both of those pieces of information. Um, you can always uh, use Twitter and tweet at MSFT enable. Again, you can share feedback to that EDAT address. Um, I know I'm sure I've spoken uh, to some of you uh, through your work and things. But, you know, I've, I've been at this for a while. I know some of the other folks have, and I know there's other folks in the group uh, that also work for Microsoft. And I think we're all here just to, you know, make things as usable as we can and work together to help everyone have success. So this is Don, and I can testify. I have a part-time job training JAWS users at the Department of Education, and I will get questions that... As much as I think I know, I'm constantly learning what I don't know. And I guess that's true for all of us, but it's pretty humbling when somebody's desperate for an answer and you gotta scramble to try to find it. And I have written the edad at Microsoft.com more times than I care to mention. Uh, they don't seem to mind though. They're happy for me to keep coming back for more. And the answers are cogent and accurate. They know their latest features. They know the latest keyboard shortcuts. Uh, they know where the articles are hidden on various subjects, whether it's SharePoint or Teams or uh, a new Outlook feature that somebody calls me about and says, hey, how can I do this in Outlook? And I'm like, really, it does that? 
I don't say that out loud. I think that because I don't want them to know how surprised I am that I didn't know something. But seriously, uh, the EDAT at Microsoft.com is a great resource for uh, enterprise applications, especially used by, you know, agencies and businesses that have a, uh, an enterprise kind of license. So take advantage of uh, what Kelly was saying. That's, that's absolutely true. And I'm here to tell you, they really provide some decent answers. So. And I would just add um, that EDAT address is available uh, to really anyone using our enterprise software, no licensing requirements. Um, the primary difference is in what what uh, the individuals are most skilled at. Um, uh, you know, if you call us or if you email with questions about Visual Studio or like I said, pivot tables in Excel, the things I, I, I've uh, going to share with you all. Those are just not everyday things uh, that when we train our agents that they're going to know. Invariably, even if you called the consumer service for those advanced features, um, they would end up referring you to EDAD. So I'm just short circuiting that. I know that some of you use both of our services as well. So I mean, you know, if it's a, a basic question about, you know, a web page or, the other many things feel free to keep using the consumer service, but I don't want to discourage anybody from uh, feeling that you can also reach out to the EDAD address. There's absolutely no licensing or um, requirements that you have a certain type of license with us. And right. some, sometimes it's individuals. Don mentioned, you know, what he does. Sometimes it's individuals at a workplace. Sometimes it's, you know, the IT department at a workplace that we're working with as they're deploying something like teams or, anything thanks kelly very much uh good useful information don yeah uh, brian here i i was amiss i got so excited about my topic <laughs> that, that i failed to give a couple of very important pieces of information yeah, yeah. so the the first one is that there is a website to get your annual credit report and it's a real brain teaser of a url it's www.annualcreditreport.com. That's tough, right? And <laughs> if you go there and you request your credit report in accessible form, they will see to it that you get it from each of these three agencies. One request, three reports, wow. okay? If you want to contact them by phone instead, it's one 877 Three two two eight two two eight. Again, one eight seven seven three two two eight two two eight. And I want to give credit, just as as um, we've been saying all along. It it takes a village to do these kinds of things. And one of the important people who have made this whole process more accessible is Lainey Feingold through her legal efforts through structured negotiations and through ACB's involvement with these entities to make sure that they are accessible. Sometimes they're not as usable as we would like, but I know through ongoing work with these three companies that they are all actively engaged in improving the user experience. Don, if you'd like, I do have a few questions. All right. That would be great. And Brian, thanks for that information. You saved the best for last. I think that one web address is great to know. 
Thank and, you. And that was one of my questions, actually. So it saves me. This is a question for Judy. Judy, if you don't have a stand, about how many inches above the check should you hold the camera? You should hold the, depending on the size of the check, the smaller the check, the lower you should hold it. So for a, like a personal size check, it's about 7.5 inches. And for a business sized, you know, larger check, it's about 10 inches. And then the other part of the question, which you did kind of did answer is, do you position it over the center of the check or... Because what you're trying to do is to get all four corners of the check into the window and be sure and do it landscape. And yes, you start, make sure the camera of your phone, not your phone itself is centered, but the camera of your phone is in the center of the check and then raise it slowly. Judy, I have a really dumb question. I was going to just, can you quickly say what's on the front and what's on the back? I wouldn't know the difference if I I heard each side spoken. On the front, Don, it says, pay to the order of Don Barrett, $10,000. I like it. It it has um, your name and address on it. It has the bank's name and address on it. It has the check number in the top right corner. It has the date just below that. Back of the check very often might be completely blank. Sometimes at one end, it has a line about an inch and a half from the end, the end that you sign, and it says, do not write or stamp below this line. Excellent. Thank you. Just what I wanted to know. I should know that. I just, I never really thought about it. And we also, someone asked a question, and um, Brian, maybe you could just go into this a little bit. I know you talked about it a little bit before, but basically, and this question may have come in a little after or before you started talking about it, but they're looking for a definition of what a FICO score is. So a FICO score is a numerical value given to all of your credit information. Uh, I'm trying to remember what FICO stands for. It is a uh, an acronym. but. Again, the number, the higher the number, the more credit worthy the analysis of your credit history indicates you are. And again, it doesn't mean that you've got a lot of credit you haven't used. It means that you are considered a good credit user. You borrow, you pay back, you borrow, you pay back. You have a good history of both borrowing and paying back. A good score is 800 or above. An ex- a perfectly okay score is 700 and above. When you drop below 700, you're going to find yourself occasionally being denied credit, and you're going to find yourself frequently charged more interest for the credit you do secure. Right. Thank you. And then I have another question that I think, because I, I don't think you covered this, but is it important or should you space out your request for your credit reports? Again, for instance, each, ask for it, one in January, one in April, that type of thing. No, you're not going to see a great deal of difference, I don't think. My experience has been that if you go through this um, website I just gave, that you're going to get one from each entity. And the three that I showed here all were requested at the same time. They clearly came from different Braille producers. And so they didn't all arrive at the same time, but they covered basically the same. They all were generated in the same month. And requesting the reports don't impact anything. On Correct. Your that does not show as somebody asked for your report. It does not 
indicate that you're worried about it or anything like that to a potential borrower. FICO means? FICO means. I've got the great and wonderful Ah. librarian at my left elbow who tells me that FICO means? Fair. Fair. Isaac's. Isaac's. Company. Company. (laughs) Now, do you feel any more educated than you did a moment ago? I do. There you go. It means something, but nothing <laughs> of real <laughs> great information. They simply have a formula that they use with this data to determine its value. A certain number of points are based on uh, how much credit you are currently uh, have as your total limit and how what percentage of that you actually are using. And again, your history relative to frequency of default and or or late payments, those kinds of things. Well, thank you, Kim and Brian. Yep. And the site to request your FICO score that you had mentioned earlier, that is accessible. Again, remember that you're getting your credit report from these three. Or your entities. FICO, I'm sorry, your FICO score. If you're looking for is your a, FICO score, yes. is there a reputable each, site for your FICO score? I'm sorry. Each one of them will sell you access to that number. So not from annualcreditreport.com, but from Equifax and and uh, TransUnion. Um, I always get the three Expedian. of them. Experian. Yeah. Experian. 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 All three of them will sell you access to that number at that time and that's the same number all three should have the same number Correct. i would think because but, it's yeah. developed on the same algorithm i was curious um kelly or judy don's already told his story about dealing with credit reports have either of you reviewed your credit report and have you gone through the process of correcting an error because lord knows i've never received one of these where there wasn't not just one, but more than one error. Generally speaking, not errors that had any impact on things, but errors nonetheless. I do have one other question for you, Brian. Please, um, go ahead. And it is someone who says, I pay off my credit card every month before the uh, interest is accrued. And they say, I'm sure the credit card company doesn't like me, which is probably true. I know. I, <laughs> but they want to know how if that impacts their credit score. It impacts it, but it impacts it positively in a good way, in a good way. In fact, my family has stopped buying groceries with a debit card and only buys groceries with a credit card. Yep. And then we pay it off at the end of each month. So it shows that I have used my credit card on a regular basis and that I paid it off on a regular basis. That is simply a good thing for your credit report in general. Strangely enough, never using your credit hurts your credit, doesn't help it. Now, here's a Janet question. I have heard, and I know that's true. And now I have also heard that you said seven years, it stays on the credit card stays on your file. So all those credit cards that you may be applied for from a department store that you never used, you really should cancel or close those out. Is that correct? Any that you have never used and do not intend used to ever so use. Seldomly. Well, I'm going to hold off on that. Okay. In fact, if you had beautiful credit, but only for the last three years, you are going to have a lower score 
than if you had beautiful credit and they could see that you are still active on accounts that you opened seven years ago. There is extra value in long-term relationships with a credit card company. I try to tell my family, we want to keep one or maybe two credit cards mm -hmm. that we use seldom, but that we have a good, we've used during these past seven years. And even if we paid it off, we've kept it open and alive uh, and kept that potential of use that somehow or other does positively affect that FICA score. Uh, one thing um, that is really important is you go through this and you spend your, get it once a year, review it over the course of a month, make notes as what doesn't make sense in this report. And what you can do, um, for example, you can appeal it. That's why the word dispute is in their address, right? In their URL slash dispute. Uh, it's worth doing. It truly is. It's also interesting to find out when you've borrowed money from someplace that sold your debt down the river. Uh, I find I'm doing business with Berkeley Bank of England in some fashion. I've never taken out an account there, but something I borrowed here in the States, that company was bought by a company that was bought by a company who sold off their assets to a company. And now my money's being routed through them, my credit history. Oh, our previous mortgage got sold about six times. It was ridiculous. And the last time we bought a house, we got a solemn promise from Wells Fargo they wouldn't sell our mortgage. And it's been, it's been 20 some odd years and they haven't sold it yet. Wow. What, one other technique, this is Kelly, that you can do because you do have the right to get these credit reports once a year. And there's three bureaus. If you really get into the habit, um, this is what I do. Um, you can get one every four months from the different companies. And that way you're uh, really keeping track of kind of the latest stuff, because I'm sure you've seen the news. I mean, like it's just really important. It's also a good way to spot identity theft or uh, all kinds of stuff. I And really a tip of the cap to the ACB and Laney Feingold for working to, push on the accessibility of this stuff. Don't worry about the exact keystrokes or commands. I'll send links to all the places where you can get the step-by-step -step information. What you should focus on is the concepts of what's possible. One other item, when you do try this, you will have to turn on uh, some connected services in Excel. That is what allows Excel to get information online. To do that, you are going to press uh, Alt-F in Excel and then arrow to Options and find General. In General, go to Privacy and then turn on the checkbox for Online Experiences. A couple other sort of housekeeping details before we get into the content. I may talk about some things that you haven't used much in Excel. For example, in the portion of my presentation on stocks, I am going to use tables. And I know we generally think of Excel as already being a table, but you can also have a portion of your spreadsheet uh, be marked as a table specifically. That allows screen readers to automatically read column headers. And when we get into the stocks is what allows some of the data to fill out automatically down a column. 
You may also notice that the speech rate for JAWS screen reader that I'm using is a bit fast. In recording and presentation, it's never easy to pick the right speed. Again, I'm sending the written information. So, and my goal isn't that you hear JAWS say everything, but just that you get the concepts. Last, I do talk a little bit about using ranges to make a selection list. If you haven't done that, don't worry. Again, I'll send you information. That should be all the housekeeping things. And so now let's move on to how you can use Excel to get some investment information. In this part of my presentation, I am going to talk a little bit about how you can use some data type features in Excel, along with a couple other functions, if you want to get investment information. The data type is something that does require an Office 365 subscription, and stocks are just one type of information. You can get a lot of this information from other places, but I like Excel for the ease of reading information and the consistency across experiences. The details of how to use these uh, items are also available online. And as a part of the follow-up to this presentation, I will share links. So I wouldn't focus on the exact keystrokes and such, but rather just some of the concepts. So in this case, I'm going to start by typing just a couple of top stock ticker symbols. So I work in the high-tech sector, so we'll just use some of those. I typed MSFT. We type Amazon's ticker symbol. And Apple. Uh, we'll do Facebook FB. And Alphabet or Google. So in cells A1 through A5, I now have these ticker symbols. I'm going to now select those cells with shift and down arrow. Select 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 For reasons that I'll show you in a moment, I'm first going to make a table with this information. So I'm going to hit Control T. My table has Okay, and I'm going to say my table doesn't have headers. Okay button. And then I'm going to hit OK. Select HSA investment options. A1, column one, A6, group A1, column one. Analysis lens, formatting tab, column MSFT A2. So right now we have a because I told my uh, Excel that I didn't have column headers, it put a column in there, header of column one. I'm going to change that to name by typing name. MSFT A2. Now I'm going to select my cells again. Select M A3, select A4, select FD A5, select A6. In this case, I'm now going to press Alt A for data. So we're going to tab through this in this case. So there you can hear Excel says data types. Now it says stocks. I'm going to press enter. In this case, those ticker symbols I typed were converted to the names. So, so far, not overly exciting. 
Amazon.com, Infection ASA, MZN, A3, Apple, Infection ASA, APL, Facebook, Infection ASA, Alphabet, Infection ASA, Facebook, Microsoft. But because this has now been converted to a data type, Name, A1, Microsoft Corporation, I can press Alt, Shift, and F10, and I have a list of items I can choose. Ticker symbol, shares outstanding, ticker symbol. In this case, we'll pick ticker symbol. Microsoft Corporation, XNAS, MSFT, A2, column better, no filter, white drop down button. We'll do it again. List box, ticker symbol, 25 or 28. Shares outstanding, price, previous close. And we'll say price. price. Microsoft Corporation, XN, list box, price, 23 or 20. Microsoft now we're going to take control, control Microsoft, name, A1, column header, no filter, price, 20. And name, A1, column, ticker symbol, E1, column header, no filter, white drop down button. Read across my first row. Price, C1, column header, no filter, white drop down button. So you'll notice my table automatically got the column headers. Ticker symbol, name, A1, column, more importantly. Microsoft Corporation, XNAS, MSFT, A2, contains stock data type, show card, control, shift, F5. Ticker symbol, MSFT, add formula, B2. So there we heard the ticker symbol. Price, $277.66, at formula C2. And the price. So I could add many other columns, ticker or symbol. I can go back. Amazon.com, XNASAMZN, list shares outstanding. Ticker symbol, AMZN, at formula B3. Price, $3,675.74, at formula C3. And if I want more columns of data, ticker symbol, AMZ, name, Amazon.com, I can press Alt-Shift-F10 again. List box, shares outstanding, 24 28. Ticker symbol, volume, volume average. And pick any volume, one of these columns. columns. These lady, open, official name, name, market cap, low, metric, instrument type, industry, high, exchange, exchange. In this list, I can also type the first letter of what I'm looking for. So I'm going to type a five. 52 week high. Amazon.com, ticker symbol, AMZN, at formula, B3, list box, 52. Now, price, $3,675.48, at formula, B3. That has been added to the information. So really, it's just a matter of typing some information, then converting it to a data type, and then using Alt-Shift-F10 to pick the information that you want. Now I'm going to go just to another area of my spreadsheet for a minute. And there may be times when Excel doesn't know the data type or you have to do some other work. So let's just type MSFT all by itself once. MSFT one. Now I'm gonna go Alt A. The shortcut for the stocks data type or to get to that is Alt A, then D, then one. MSFT M1. Data select for pane. MSFT M1. Now, in this case, I have provide feedback with sound turned on in Excel, and you will notice that we heard a sound and something else came up. So this is, if Excel doesn't know about the data type or it wants you to make a choice, you would read down further. So I'm going to read down this information. So here we hear that the cell is M1. My search query was MSFT. I could actually change that because you heard that was an edit. Cancel search button. Search button. Select a matching result by the term above. And open using the data selector button. Picture of Microsoft Corporation button graphic. Microsoft Corporation list box item. Stop NASDAQ stock market. MSF button. And then we heard MSFT and NASDAQ. So I can press enter. Microsoft Corporation XNAS MSFT M1. Microsoft Corporation XNAS MSFT M1. Now that has been converted to the stock data type and Microsoft. Again, with focus on this, there's a couple things I can do now. 
I can hit Control Shift F five and tab through some data. This is what is called a card. And now you hear extract Microsoft Corporation to grid. So this is the same data that you can get from Alt Shift F10, but you can tab through it and explore it. Microsoft Corporation contains So this is all helpful. And now let's look at how you can put a lot of this together in an actual example. So I have a spreadsheet here with some investment choices from a health savings account I happen to have. So what I did is a website where I was getting, uh, having to look some of this information up kept changing and wasn't overly screen reader friendly. So I just grabbed all the ticker symbols from uh, my investment choices, and then I built a table of that information. And just like I showed earlier with the ones I had manually entered, I've done the work already here to build this, and then I built my table so now I can read through this and get the information. So here I can hear that, you know, the five-year return on that investment was the number that we heard. My apologies, that was the return YTD. The other thing is, I can, another column I can add is expense ratio. And I always like to understand that because it might be a great return, but how much are you paying for that? So I can arrow up and down this column now. And explore all of this information. I can also sort by typing, in this case, we want to find uh, I can just type ASB uh, to sort most expensive to least expensive. So this is kind of helpful. Again, you could put any stocks or symbols you want here. Last, I've done a couple other things that for me I find helpful in this example. So. I made a range of this first column. In Excel, you can select all the cells you want and press Control F3, and then that is what's called a range, and you can use that in formulas. So what I did is I built a second spreadsheet because I want to get the price history and such for an investment. So I switched to my price history sheet, in this case, again, I put a ticker symbol in. But what I actually did, instead of putting the ticker symbol in, I used Excel's data validation feature 
which is again available on the data ribbon. And I said, I want a list. And for the source of that list, I used the range that I had created. And then I did the same thing where I added the other columns of information I want to get a detail. So, but now because this is a range and I've said show that range as a drop down list, I can hit alt down arrow. And pick the stock I'm interested in. Again, this same information was available on my first sheet. But what I've done now is I'll show you why I want it this way. Because on, on this spreadsheet, Actually, going to use another function uh, that is a price history function in Excel. Again, that's a function that's available to Office 365 subscribers. But so what I've done now in cell. A3, I've said start date. And then B3, I put in my date. And then I made a formula for how long do I want uh, the information. So here, for my start date, I've said today's date minus 365. For my end uh, end date, I just use the today function to say it's going to be today. I could change this. Now I'm going to arrow down a little bit more. So this is the symbol uh, where I'm getting the price history. And you heard Excel say that it has a formula. Again, there's a lot here, but this is out on the web of how this actually works. But what I'm saying is I want the price history for the ticker symbol that I selected for um, my start date and end date, which is 365 days. And now I can arrow up and down. And I haven't set this up so that the dates read as I'm arrowing. I like to just uh, move down the list just to get a sense of how price is fluctuating. So this is um, just a little bit of information about how you can get some stock and investment information in Excel. Again, we started by entering some ticker symbols. We then optionally converted that to a table just so that some of the automatic filling of information works. We then chose data type from the Excel ribbon and stocks to have that ticker symbols converted to a stock data type. We then used alt shift F10 to pick additional columns that we wanted to display, such as the actual ticker symbol, even though we had typed that, um, the price and whatever other information you want. And then I also took all of that information and built it into a more robust spreadsheet where I converted 
a bunch of ticker symbols to a range as well. Use that as a validation source for a drop-down list to look up information and then combine that with the price history function in Excel to get the price history for a stock. Hopefully this helps a little bit. And again, we'll follow up with links and such where you can get the exact syntax for all of this. I wish I could. I'd say, oh, I lost connection there. We're not going to take a look at another handy feature in Excel known as pivot tables. Pivot tables allow you to look at a large amount of data in various ways that you can make easy determination. About I have to interface between Part them. Part of the reason why they're called pivot tables is because yeah, it's very easy to like change was trying sort to of view that you have on the information. Yeah. We're going to start with a simple example of some financial transactions similar to what you might download from your bank or credit card company. I've downloaded a few of my older transactions, and this has columns in the following order. Transaction, date A1, column header, no filter, apply, drop down. So this has date, amount, business, E1, business, category, E1, and the category column. Now, the category column is one that I added. We'll review a couple of the transactions. One slash two slash 2016, A2, transaction. Debit, B2, amount, minus 21.41, C2, business, SQ, star curve, jumpers, 3DA, Seattle, B2, category, dining, B2. So there we can hear that that was from early 2016 and for about $22 from a business called Curve Jumper. And the SQ, I know, just comes from the square payment system. So I have about 25 transactions here. And I want to make a pivot table because I'd like to know sort of how I spent money and things. So to add a pivot table, I've already turned this data into a table as I talked about earlier. What I'm going to do now is hit Alt N. Date A1, column, upper ribbon, 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 tab, tab. For insert. Insert tables, pivot tables, split button. In this case, I'm just going to accept the default pivot table. If I wanted to understand more choices, I could hit Alt down arrow to expand that split button. Leaving menus, leaving ribbons, land, column. Uh, Excel's going to prompt me for where the data is. Again, I can just accept the default right here. Choose where you want, choose where you want to add. And where I want the data. Choose where you want the pivot table to be placed. New worksheet, radio. I want it on a new worksheet. Choose with OK button. Sheet 1, sheet 1, land, A3, pivot example. So now I'm into the pivot table spreadsheet. This is just like a regular spreadsheet, but if we press F6 a couple of times. Sheet 1 tab. Pivot table fields, type words to search for. We get to the pivot fields control. I can search for the fields I want to manipulate, but I prefer to arrow through them. Date, checkbox unchecked. Now, when you build a pivot table, you can put information in one of four areas. Those areas are the report filter to limit kind of what you're viewing or adjust it. The rows, the columns, or the values. You do not have to put something in all of those columns. Transaction checkbox unchecked. In this case, amount checkbox unchecked. I'm going to put the amount in the values field because I want Excel to add that up. Context menu at the report filter at the at the column labels. I do that by pressing Shift F10 or the computer's application key and arrowing down to where I want to place this information. At the values. In this case, we're going to add it to values. Leaving menus amount checkbox. Un- I'm actually going to add it a second time for reasons that will become obvious when we explore the pivot table. Context menu, add the row labels, add, add the values. 
leaving menus amount. And in this case, the other item that we want is the business name. Business checkbox object. Or just business. I'm going to add this to rows right now. Context menu, after report filter, after all labels, leaving menus, business checkbox object, business checkbox. I've now built a pivot table. If I want to explore the fields I've added before I go look at the data, I can tab. More tables, dot, 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 columns, values, button. So there Excel tells me. Rows, business button. Values, sum of amount button. Sum of amount to button. Sum of rows, business button, columns, values button. What information I have. I'm now going to press Control Shift F6 twice. Sheet one tab. Because the first time I land on the tab row or the sheet list. Land A2, row labels A3, no filter applied drop down button. Now I'm into my pivot table and I can start exploring this. So again, the business name is going to be down the leftmost column. Amazon A4, column better. So my first column is Amazon. Sum of amount, minus 22.96. So that indicates for this period of transactions, I spent a little over $22. Sum of amount to minus 22.96, C4. couple things. So I've added that a second time, as I said I would, and we hear the same information. But one of the things you can do in pivot tables is change how you're uh, viewing the information. You can change it in a couple of ways. Menu copy. Again, shift F10 or the application key. Sort number, sort submenu, remove sub, summarize values by submenu, summarize values by. In this case, show values as submenu, show values. We want to change how we're showing the value. Leaving menus, menu. So I hit right arrow. No calculation check. Right now it's set to no calculation. Percent of grand total. But to add value to this, what I really want it to be is percent of grand total. Leaving menus, 2.11%. See? So on this sheet right now, the Amazon number represents, as you heard, 2.11% of what I've spent. I can also sort this information because clearly I would like to probably do that. Again, shift F10 or your application key. Menu copy. Format number four. Refresh. Sort submenu. Sort. Remove sum of amount two. Sort submenu. Sort. Sort smallest to largest. Because negative numbers in this case is what I'm most interested in. Because those are expenses, we're going to change this to smallest to largest. Leaving menus, 21.93%, C4. So now we hear... Some of Best Western, A4, column header. Uh, a hotel stay, or, or stays, I don't know how many yet, uh, was my biggest expenditure in this period. And that was 21% of my spending. Sum of amount, minus 238.3. Or $238. Sum of Safeway, 15.41%, C5. So here we heard Safeway at 15%. Fredmeyer, 9.75. Fredmeyer, another store. And we can hit Control down arrow to go to the end of this. Grand total, 100.00%. C29. So obviously the total percentage is 100 because that's all the numbers. But we want to go left one column. Sum of amount, minus 1,087.06. So this indicates that my total spending for the period of transactions here was... $1,087. But there's an important point. This uh, transactions I know include some payments. Payment electronic, 250, E28. So if I want to exclude that, Payment electronic, I can go and say, again, shift F10 or the application key. Menu, cop, formats, refresh, sort sub, filter sub menu. And I can say filter. Clear filter from this keep only hide selected items. Hide selected items. Leaving menus, grand total, A28. Sum of amount, minus 1,337. So the total spending now for the period that these transactions represent 
was $1,337. Land A1, land row labels, some of them up as Western, some of them up to 17.83%, C4. So you can see that hotel percentage went up a little bit. And if you don't like these column names, which obviously I don't want it just to say sum of amount two. Sum of amount two, C3, column header. I can header. just type a new column name. Edit. Western, so I can do this at any time just by downloading my transactions from my bank and build my own pivot tables to review information. I know there's other ways to do this, but this can be very handy. This is just one example. I'll show you a, another example where you can use pivot tables to explore a large amount of data. Some of you may be familiar during COVID about the government loan program or hey, Rick. program. And as you probably heard in the news, that information, you know, where the money was spent or who got loans was made available uh, to download. So in, I've downloaded for the state of Wisconsin. Spending, spending. Wisconsin PPE data, Wisconsin. Uh, a spreadsheet from the government of this. Now this has loan amount A one. I'm hitting Control Home to go to the top, and I'm going to hit Control Down Arrow. Two hundred forty one thousand nine hundred twenty three. A eighty nine thousand one hundred sixty five. Eighty nine thousand uh, and a little over rows of data. So there's no way that I'm ever going to you know study eighty nine thousand rows. But I reviewed the columns that were available, and I made a pivot table of the information I want. So I'm going to go to that pivot table once. PPE pivot, PPE pivot, open So again, I'm going to press F6 to go to the pivot table field. PPE pivot tab, pivot table fields, type work, loan amount, checkbox checked. So this is the list of fields that I could add. More tables, dot, dot, the columns, business type button. So here we say here that my columns. Rows, city clean button. Is what's called city clean. Values, sum of loan amount button. Defer layout update check. And my values, values, sum of loan amount button, are the sum of the loan, rows, columns, business type button. And I actually edit columns this time of business type. So let's see how this plays out. Again, we'll hit Control Shift F6. Albany A11, column header, PPE. So what this has done is for the state of Wisconsin, it has listed the cities. Land B11. Albany, A, Afton, A10, Adele, A9, Adams, A8, Abrams, A7, Cabor, Vinny, A6, Land, Land, C6, 2,037, Corporation, C, List, List, Pivot, Examples, Excel, Pivot, Abbots, for Employee, Stock, Ownership, Land, S, Corporation, Collaborative, so, Land, B5, we'll start at the first one, Abbotsford, A5, Column, Header, Abbotsford, now if we hit right arrow, Collaborative, Land, B5, so no businesses in Adford, Abbotsford were classified as a cooperative, I don't want to arrow through all the blank cells, so I'm going to use a command in Excel, to move to the first cell that has data in this case. I'm going to hit control right arrow. Corporation, 2037000 So the city of Abbotsford had businesses that got $2 million, uh, in PPE loans. Corporation. If I want to see Abbotsford. the total for the state, I can hit control and Grand total. Grand total. $9,891,700. And now I hear that Throughout the state of Wisconsin in this program, there was $9.8 billion. If I arrow to the left, Land, trust, businesses that were classified as a trust got uh, um, um, Land, trust, 1,700,000. The point isn't that this data would be what you want to look at, but it shows you that you can very easily build powerful views of large amounts of data. 
The other thing to know is, again, we could sort this. Land, a, land, some alone amount, a scroll label, cooperative, E4, col- column, So we'll go over. Land, I3, land, a, land, 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 E3, land, E2. Independent contract, grand total, E4, column, header. To this grand total column. Abbotsford, 5 million, menu, cop, high field list, cop, form, number, refresh, sort submenu, sort, sort smallest to largest, sort largest to smallest. And we'll say sort largest to smallest. Leaving menus, 1 million. Trust, 140, trust, top, row labels, A4, Milwaukee, A5. So now the top column, or row, I apologize, is Milwaukee. And we can see the order of the cities. And as you can guess, Madison, A6. It's going to go by population for the most part. Professional association, self employed subchapter S, trust, grand total, 660 million. So now I've moved over to the totals column, and I could go down and see throughout Milwaukee, 1, 250, Wisconsin, who got money. Madison, 660, Green Bay, 390. I'm originally from a town in uh, Wisconsin called Fond du Lac. Like Apple, with the 8th Menominee, Kenosha, Black Rock, New Berlin, Oshkosh, Racine, James, Dumont, Middleton, Wazit, Fond du Lac, 99,800,000. So it was $99 million of loans to people in Fond du Lac. Now, I'm really curious if I want to drill into the details. So this is great. I can build this pivot table and get the high-level details. But I can also, again, press Shift F10 or the application key. Menu, cop, format, number, refresh, sorts up, remove, summarize, show values, a submenu, show details. And if I use the show details option, a new spreadsheet will open up with the details based on the interception of the number I'm looking at. So all of the businesses in Fond du Lac only in this case. C2, C2, A1, loan amount, W700. Now this analysis lens, format. A one loan amount that I could look at. Analysis lens format. A one loan amount W seven. Analysis lens oh. formatting tab. We've just scratched the surface on what you can do with pivot tables. Again, the basic process is obtain your data either by downloading it or using some of Excel's uh, connectivity options. There's a whole host of options for connecting to information. Then. Make sure that data is in a tabular form and for ease of use, also convert it to a table again by selecting all the data, pressing control T and indicating that it has column headers. It makes things a little bit easier, uh, especially if you add more data and things like that. Then go to the insert menu. Say you want to insert a new uh, table and a pivot table. Say you want it on a new spreadsheet and choose OK. On that spreadsheet, Go ahead and press F6 a couple times until you get to the fields. And then arrow down and bring up the context menu with either Shift F10 or the application key and choose where you want the fields to go. Either report filter, rows, columns, or values. And you can add multiple items to the rows, multiple things to the columns, uh, or as we saw in my example, we added the va- uh, values twice for the same information because we wanted to view it two different ways, both as a raw number and then as a percentage. So I hope this gives you a little bit of an idea on how to use pivot tables in addition to getting from the first part of the presentation some financial information. I uh, thank you for your time. Excellent. Wow. I know I'm going to listen to that a few times myself to really get all the details. And we'll have the resource links posted and everything else. And the videos will be available for download. Um, I'm a little concerned about the time. So I wanted to know, Janet, are you still with us?
I am. Great. Do you want to give the closing code? I will give the closing code and other events. Yep. Yes. And as um, was said, we have a section on acbconvention.org and any handouts that you want to send or any information, we'll be happy to post it on there and so that everybody has easy access to it. But the closing code for this session is 96567. Again, 96567. And if we didn't get to your questions, I will forward them to Brian and or Kelly. And he can, oh, one thing, Kelly, could you give and spell the email address that you gave out earlier for assistance? Yes, it is E, like echo, and then the word dad. D-A-D for Disability Answer Desk at Microsoft.com. Great. I want to thank all the presenters, Gosh and Janet, and your help, and Judy and Brian and Kelly. Uh, great evening. We all made it through. And Rick, thank you for persevering. And we, we got it all done. And my gratitude goes out to all of you. It was great. We'll make it all available for download, including the resources, and I think we're good to go. Thank you all so much for coming, for being with us, and for marshalling through. I think it was well worth it, and there's a lot of good information we'll make available.